listening to an episode of The Rewind, a podcast series by the Hauenstein Center for Presidential Studies in Grand Rapids, Michigan. This episode features audio from the Common Ground Initiative's 2023 Progressive Conservative Summit on April 19, 2023. This year's summit had the topic of preventing political violence. This keynote was titled West Michigan Perspectives on Political Violence, featuring former Representative Peter Meyer and Dr. Adam London, Director of Kent County Health Department. This event was offered in partnership with the Gerald R. Ford Presidential Foundation and features a panel conversation moderated by the Howenstein Center's director, Megan Rydecki. If you'd like to learn more about this event or our speakers, please visit gvsu.edu forward slash hc forward slash procon23, which is linked in the description below. Enjoy the podcast. Now, as I introduce our moderator for this evening, I want to welcome our panelists to the stage. You can make your way up here now. Megan Rydecki joined the Heistein Center as the director in January 2023. She holds a Bachelor of Arts in the International Relations of Masters in Public Administration, both from Grand Valley State University. Prior to joining the Heistein Center, Megan spent time in the public, private, and nonprofit sectors, serving at the city of Wyoming, International City, and County Management Association, The Right Place, CQL, and most recently, Consumers Energy. Her community involvement is extensive, highlighted by service to Grand Rapids, Whitewater, and Grand Rapids Public Museum, and the Board of Trustees at Grand Valley State University. These experiences have allowed Megan to recognize the leadership potential in everyone, and she is dedicated to empowering the generation of leaders for the world to come. Well, everyone, good evening, and I'd like to reiterate my thanks for you all being here and joining us for our Progressive Conservative Summit. So former Congressman Peter Meyer is a fourth-generation West Michigander. Peter served in the Army Reserves and deployed to Iraq in 2010 to conduct intelligence operations. Later, he led disaster response efforts in South Sudan and the Philippines before working with an international NGO in Afghanistan managing a large team to provide conflict analysis to humanitarian groups and deliver emergency assistance after kidnappings and targeted killings. In Congress, Peter served on the Homeland Security, Foreign Affairs, and Science, Space, and Technology Committees and was a member of the Bipartisan Problem Solvers Caucus. He holds a BA from Columbia University and an MBA from New York University. Welcome, Peter. Thank you. Dr. Adam London is the Administrative Health Officer for Kent County and Director of the Kent County Health Department, a role he has held since 2013. He's earned a Bachelor of Science degree in Industrial and Environmental Health Management from Ferris State University and a Master of Public Administration degree from Grand Valley State University, go Lakers, and a PhD in Public Health from Walden University. Prior to his role with Kent County, Dr. London was working with local public health departments here in Michigan since 1998. While addressing a multitude of public health challenges over the past 25 years, he's most well known for being the incident commander of Kent County's COVID-19 pandemic response. He is co-founder of the Kent County Population Health Consortium, chair of the Kent County Family and Children Coordinating Council, and a past president of the National Environmental Health Association. 
Dr. London also teaches courses in public health and administration as an adjunct at GVSU, the University of Michigan, Michigan State University, Western Michigan University, and Ferris State. Welcome, Adam. So um, Peter and Adam, thank you again for being here. We know that both of you have had personal experience with political violence and our threats of violence, and we're really you know, just fortunate to have you here to share some of your experience today. Um, with that, let's jump right in. So to start off, how has polarization more generally and political violence specifically impacted you, the people you've worked with, and those who served um, in your roles? Yeah, so <laughs> thank you, Megan, and thanks everyone for, for being here this evening. Um, it's a great conversation. and I think that, you know, we've all been affected by political violence and, uh, and how it sh shaped our world and reshaped our world uh, as a result of the pandemic. When I think about my team and the people that I work with, I have 250 positions at the Kent County Health Department, and about 100 of those have turned over during the course of the past three years, which is really extraordinary turnover for us. Now, when I would meet with uh, the employees before the pandemic and ask many of those that had been there for a long time, why, why are you still here? Why haven't you retired? They would often say, uh, I'm here because it brings me joy. I, I'm here because it makes a difference. And, um, and that's really what it's all about for so many who work in public service. Now, I've seen and heard from staff of the course of the past three years that some of the joy has come out of the work. And that is one of the factors that's led to that turnover. So that's kind of the bad news. The good news is when I, in fact, I just met with our new staff last week and there's about 100 of them that are new. And I say, are you guys nuts? Have you been watching? Do you know what kind of polarization is out there? And they say, no, that's why we're here. We're here because it matters to us. It's meaningful, purposeful work. It's a little bit, I think, like public service. is a little bit like the ministry or, or the military, where it's a calling. People are drawn to it because it matters. And I think that's inspiring for me and so many others that, that see that the people who are joining now are doing so with eyes wide open and are doing so because they want to serve and make our communities better, despite the aggression and some of the, the toxic uh, stuff that's happened over the past several years. Sure. That was a much more hopeful opening than I was going to give. Oh, okay. Here we go. <laughs> I'm, I'm very grateful for everyone here today. Megan, thank you for inviting us. Um, I mean, I just, I guess to put it in very concise ways, I mean, I've seen people change their mind on things knowing the, the pressure or blowback they might get. I've seen, um, you know, call, I, I've known folks who were planning on running for office and then looked at, at sort of the environment they might be stepping into uh, and, and made a calculation after talking with their family that even if they themselves were willing to do it, uh, that, and then this is, this is, I guess, political violence on, on sort of one end, but just sort of the, the, the tension and everything that's kind of uh, to the left of it on the spectrum of, of intensity, you know, it changed their minds on whether or not to pursue. Um, and I'm so deeply grateful for those who do choose to step forward, you know, but especially in an environment where you know, that service, um, you know, depending on someone's background and qualifications, they may make more in the private sector than, than the public sector. Um, you know, you hope that that drive and passion for service can overcome, you know, the, the financial hit, your know, opportunity cost. Um, 
But then when you layer on and stack on top of that deficit, additional uh, you know, chances of having your you know, people show up at, at your house or, or your kids um, getting ridiculed or, or harassed at school by classmates. Um, you know, I, I've known colleagues who had to, who pulled their kids out of school um, after a vote or had to, uh, you know, in, in some cases have them live with family members. And, you know, on the one hand, you know, the materialized violence is relatively rare. The threats can be very constant. Um, I, I'd only got, I, I thought I'd only gotten a couple of death threats. Um, and it, relative, because I have some female colleagues, by the way, and like female politicians get easily 10x or 50x uh, the type of harassment and, and vitriol that, that male politicians get, and that is not a partisan component. It's pretty evenly distributed. Um, but I was talking with a, a female colleague, and she said, it was just like, oh, yeah, no, we got like 200 this week. And I was like, oh, man, like, we've gotten like five. And I checked with my staff, and they were like, oh, wait, you're not being CC'd on those reports to Capitol Police? I was like, okay, guys, you got to keep me in the loop here. And then I went back, and it was, it was a little bit more, uh, more even. Um, but I think we should be doing everything we can to t try to tilt that playing field back towards having a public service that is not viewed as yet another realm in which to fight. You know, the, the election, the dialogue, that debate, if you're not engaged in the art of persuasion, but you feel that that is ineffective and you shift to intimidation, um, you wind up in a circumstance where in the best case scenario, some folks self-select and say it's bad and I feel like I should step forward and I wanna be kind of leading that charge. You know, in the worst case scenario, um, and, and this is much more on the political side, people say, oh, that looks like fun. I wanna go do that, you know, and, and it becomes a more baser, uh, superficial impulse. It's somebody who, uh, you know, doesn't run towards the fire because they wanna put it out, but they run towards it because they like the flames. And I think that is probably not a great long-term strategy for a free country. Yeah, I think we've all probably had the conversation looking at candidates, and we've been fortunate to have really great representatives come out of the West Michigan area, but people who have the conversation say, well, you know, who am I going to pick the lesser of two evils, you know, or who would be crazy enough to run right now? There's a lot of smart people out there who may not. How do we change that? You know, how do we change that tide so that the good, smart, honest, best people do want to pursue these kind of roles and these kind of offices? I mean, a lot of it has to do with what forum someone's engaging in, right? I mean, it is so sad how disproportionately heard the loudest, angriest voices are when they're oftentimes in no way, shape, or form reflective of the body politic. You know, but if that's all you're seeing on social media, if that's all you're you know, hearing about when you go to a town hall, because usually it's not people who feel ambivalent who take the time out of their day to show up. It's you know, ideally people who are incredibly passionate and supportive, um, more realistically, you know, it's, it's kind of the, the political conversation equivalent of graffiti. Like it's, it's going to tend towards extremes. Nobody spray paints, you know, this wall is okay. I mean, it's either passionate support or passionate opposition. And so, you know, being counterweighting a little bit of that with making sure you're engaging with your elected officials um, and not just, I love this or I hate that. Um, but at the same time, also not trying to give power to those loudest voices by immediately paying the most attention to folks who objectively don't have a lot of influence or don't have a lot of power, but by 
the fact that they're willing to say things that are controversial, um, even if it's somebody you despise, you know, that act of, 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 of feeling in your heart a sense of hatred is, is giving them power. It's giving them agency. Uh, it's elevating them to a position they don't deserve to be in ways that become self-fulfilling. Yeah, and I think we really need to start uh, with inviting people to the conversation mm -hmm. and, and encouraging participation. And I think we learned that during the pandemic is that uh, people who are isolated, they're excluded, they're disenfranchised. Um, in many cases, they're receiving information that it's not complete. Uh, they, they tend to um, manifest behaviors that are, are disordered. And we see that on both sides. This is not exclusive to one side or the other. This is, this is human behavior. And um, it's very much like how we, we look at other complicated, wicked problems like, like mental illness and, and so many of these other challenging issues we're faced with this. How do we really get to core root causes and unpack these things in a way that's productive to get people to be involved in the process early on and to become educated and, and to be part of the conversation, have a role uh, in the participation of decision-making uh, early on. Well, in that sense of somebody feeling like they have a role, feeling like they have a voice, you know, you can feel that way on the internet when somebody's responding back to you. And if you don't, if you see decisions being made in your political environment that you don't agree with, and that you feel, even when you were saying you're disagreeing, you're shouting into a vacuum, right? If you feel like the institutions that we have uh, are unable to peaceably resolve conflicts or unable to, to appropriately reflect somebody's belief. And especially when you're talking in maybe an, an echo, uh, sorry, an echo chamber, um, you know, on an online space or you're, you're consuming media content that is, is just kind of driving you to look at the world, not for how you're seeing it when you're out and about, not necessarily for what you see in your community, but to believe that there's some, you know, evil, entity out there doing something uh, horrific and whether that's you know a liberal thinking that that texas you know is um post-apocalyptic conservative wasteland or, or a republican thinking that about california you begin to inherently devalue the institutions that we have and and, and to me and by the way i'm not trying to draw moral equivalencies or relative equivalencies and one of the things that i think is so bad is we spend a lot of time arguing about what's worse rather than saying, no, that was bad, right? But the through line between, I think, the, the violence we saw over the summer of 2020 and the violence at the Capitol on January 6th was folks believing that they could not address their frustrations through the institutions, that the institutions that we have as sort of our common arbiter were irreparably corrupt or, or irreparably um, you know, delegitimate. And so the only thing left then, the logical conclusion is to work outside of those institutions. And if we don't try to restrain those impulses and channel things back within our institutions and make sure that our institutions work well, make sure that we can trust the people within them, to make sure that, that, you know, with the heightened transparency we have, um, you know, maybe a hundred years ago, you could have gotten away with a lot more if you were just an absolute idiot in a bureaucratic position. Now that all of the stupid things you've done and said are going to get foiled out the wazoo and pasted, you know, on, on a partisan website. You know, if we don't do a better job of 
having institution, making our institutions ones that we can trust, then also trusting our institutions, right? It's a two-way street. Then those mechanisms get devalued and then we lose something really, really important. We lose a, a sense of, of that there are things that could be neutral. And if you lose that neutrality, then every ethic is a situational ethic. Every, um, everything just becomes broken. Yeah. And I swear I'm going to be more optimistic later, but we're like, we, we need to kind of dive down and then um, pull okay. on me. It's like a J curve. That's okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll pull you out. That's fine. Um, Adam, you touched on COVID-19 for, right. for a minute. Um, you know, the pandemic and the subsequent governmental responses proved to be more fuel for the fire for political polarization. Um, specifically, health officials at all levels across the United States experienced harassment. Can you speak to the impact this has had on health outcomes and the public health profession, either nationally or here sure. in West Michigan? Yeah, so it, it's been a challenge, right? Um, we've seen about a quarter of people in, in my position leave in the past uh, few years. We've seen, I talked a little bit about the turnover. Uh, recruitment has been a challenge. Um, while those who are coming to us are fantastic uh, and they're energized, we still have a challenge with getting enough of them. So that's a problem. Uh, and then we look at outcomes. And by the way, that's not exclusive to public health. Uh, my, my friends and colleagues at the hospitals uh, downtown would say the same thing, yeah. that they have a massive talent problem right now, uh, getting enough great people to come into their organization. They've lost a lot. So this is really the public and medical health system uh, overall that is challenged right now. When we look at outcomes, uh, vaccines come to mind right away. You know, we're seeing waning vaccine coverage rates for measles, mumps, pertussis, rubella, um, diphtheria, influenza, chickenpox, the whole gamut. We're seeing all of them wane, not just COVID uh, hesitancy and opposition. So that's concerning, especially as you know, some of the more contagious of them, like measles, are hovering near or below what we generally consider herd immunity levels. Then we see things like the, uh, the, the challenge we have with mental illness which was a crisis before the pandemic, which has been exacerbated. We don't have enough psychiatric care beds and those in that profession either. Uh, and we have uh, you know, the, the opioid and substance use pandemics, which were a crisis before COVID. Unfortunately, because we've been so uh, trapped and strapped to COVID for the past several years, we haven't in public health and medicine or other places been able to give that pandemic the attention that it really deserves. And when I talk to professionals at the hospitals or at some of the psychiatric care centers, they talk about some of the new and emerging issues like cannabis-induced psychosis with our young people. That's an upcoming issue and we're certainly not prepared for that. So all of these challenges have been exacerbated and are getting worse. And we look at life expectancy in the U.S. for the first time in a long time, we've had two consecutive years where our life expectancy has decreased. And that's not just a COVID thing because it's not happening to the same level in other parts of the world. And when we look within that decrease, we see a greater problem, which is the disparity of the effect with white Americans seeing about a 2.4 year reduction in life expectancy and Hispanic and black Americans seeing life expectancy decreases over four years. So that's a problem that we've seen exacerbated. And then we have this general distrust of people like myself and the, the healthcare profession. And, 
you know, I think people like, like me in, in public service at a government level are pretty easy to, to demagogue, right? We work for government. And so it's pretty easy when things are polarized to say, well, that's the government guy talking. I get that. That's part of the challenge we've always mm -hmm. been faced with. But every poll that's ever been taken about your doctor, your physician, has always said that we as a society hold them in high regard. Now we're seeing that start to come back and that start to decline or people don't trust their doctor anymore. So the political conflict and these issues are starting to affect how people trust their physician and their nurse. And that's a challenge as well. So all of this puts us in a very vulnerable spot going forward to make sure that we have the preventative health care, uh, the health care for the needs that we have right now, and the health care in place for the new and emerging things, which are going to be a challenge for us in the coming years. Mm -hmm. You know, your point about um, life expectancy and whatnot, many of us probably heard some recent studies about maternal health care and maternal mortality. And it's, um, the mortality rates are increasing um, in the United States. And I was flabbergasted to hear that. Um, and it's just, yeah, your, your rationale right now makes perfect sense leading into that, but it's really sort of alarming, um, some, some of these trends and, and where we're headed for some of that. So somewhat tied to that, um, and Peter, you just touched on this a little bit, but um, you know, talking about how political violence is a last resort, and how do we, um, how do we ensure that people have peaceful methods and nonviolent methods for working out their frustrations, bringing their concerns, and that sort of thing? Um, you know, Adam, certainly, you sat through some really long county commission meetings during COVID and um, a lot of people who came out to give commentary who probably never had been to a meeting before. And so, you know, as we think about how do we create these safe spaces, as challenging as that was, was there any silver lining to say, hey, look, this many people are actually engaging in government because they, they wanna have a voice about this particular thing? Yeah, so certainly uh, we do want the population engaged. It's unfortunate that, you know, we went into a pandemic really not prepared with that level of awareness about what the plans are going into it. And I hope that's something we learn in this moment is how do we take all those lessons learned, dissect them and clearly have a plan in place for heaven for the next time that happens long after I've retired. Um, because you know, I, I think about things like the public health code, which was put in place by the people of Michigan through the legislative process signed by a governor in 1978 that gives people like me the power and the duty to identify public health hazards and react uh, in a particular way. And so when the unfortunate circumstance of a pandemic arrives, people like me had to make tough decisions. And we had, as officers of the law, a duty spelled out the law to carry out certain actions. And so not surprisingly, many people were, were shocked by that. And it doesn't seem, it doesn't uh, appeal to the democratic principles that we all have because it seems like it's giving one bureaucrat an awful lot of power and that's not right. And maybe it's not right. But that's the kind of thing we need to think about now is, is how do we, if we don't like that law, how do we change that law or improve upon it and have a system in place that, that we can agree to as a society so that the next time we're not surprised that a certain office has particular powers and duties. 
Are you suggesting our legislative branch is not functioning as well as it maybe should? (laughs) No. And and like my answer to that takes a little bit of a roundabout path, but it definitely, well, I think part of the reason why it was such kind of a rude awakening for folks who didn't feel like they had, who hadn't really been politically involved, didn't really feel like they needed to be until there were decisions being made that maybe they felt uh, weren't reflective of what they had wanted. And then the only kind of option is, is not is not the engagement ahead of time to say, you know, in the event of a pandemic, we should probably, you know, brush up on, on the laws that we have, make sure they're still relevant to today. Um, the amount of times I've t- looked at an issue at the federal level, and ideally it was a law that really hadn't been changed since the 1960s, or early 1970s. In some cases, laws that haven't been changed since World War I era, right? But we just kind of have that legislative inertia where it's a lot easier to pass a new law than to repeal an old one. Um, which I can vouch as somebody who's been trying to, re- who, uh, an authorization for the use of military force from the Eisenhower era that's still living out there, that not a single person has told me has any reason to be kept on the books, uh, passed with unanimous consent in the House, the Senate's like, oh, we love this thing, never end up taking it up. Anyways, I digress. Like, it is so much easier to pass a new law than to repeal an old one. But the two trends over the past several decades that I think have been so deeply problematic for the way our government functions has been on the one hand, power always going up. Federal government taking power away from the states, state governments taking power away from municipalities, many times because those municipalities had had failed um, in part of their responsibility. But instead of having the voters of that constituency holding their elected officials responsible, the lesson learned was those, that level of government can't be trusted, so we're going to elevate it up. You do that long enough, and all of a sudden, most of our engagement with the government is at the federal level. It's at the highest level. It's at the least responsive entity because of how far you have to go to get something done, and one that is really not well-suited to address most of the challenges and most of the ways in which we interact with government. So that on the one hand, but then within each of those levels, as that power is going up, it flows from less democratic bodies from less accountable bodies, um, sorry, from more accountable bodies to less accountable bodies, from our legislative branches to our executive branches. So not only you know, are we thinking not, you know, what is my city council going to do? What is my state legislature, or my county commission going to do? What's my state legislature going to do before we think of what Congress is going to do? But we say, well, what's my mayor gonna do? You know, what's my governor gonna do? And, and that, leads us to a place where those elected officials continuously overpromise. They say things that they literally cannot do. And then when they try to do something, it's thrown out and then they blame the judicial branch or they blame the process or something else, right? So there's this overpromising that inherently leads to the inevitable underdelivering, And then people grow disillusioned and disenfranchised, dissatisfied with that feeling that this person told me they're going to do something. They can't do it. They're all liars. So let's throw these liars out and bring in the other guys who are overpromising, who are just going to do the exact same thing. And then the polarization, not just polarization, but the the kind of um, ping ponging polarization that that brings in. And the easy, very actually hard from both the political standpoint and from uh, a legislative standpoint, but the solution to that is, is reinvigorating local governance, right? Having a sense that 
yeah, I can actually see the fruits of my investment in politics when I'm engaged at the municipal level, when I'm engaged at the county level, you know, far more than if I'm always relying on the state or the federal government to do that. And not taking all of these little shortcuts that were taken because they're easy, but saying we need to trust a process. It is the most dissatisfying thing to hear an elected official say, well, you know, the process means that we need to wait, we need to take a pause, we need to do this. That is so incredibly infuriating to hear, but it's something that sometimes need to be said because you may love that official who is shortcutting the process or circumventing, you may love what they're doing um, and say, well, maybe it's not ideal, but they're cracking that door open with that exception and the next person's gonna come through and you're probably not gonna like them and they're just gonna kick that door wide open, right? So we keep establishing these precedents, maybe that were justified in the moment, but are gonna be abused to all get out down the line. And so retaining that sense of discipline, but also just getting engaged at the local level. That, that is, um, that is I, I think of how many folks at, on January 6th who ended up getting arrested, who hadn't voted. I, like, that's, I mean, that, that's just like, okay. Um, I mean, it's the, the political violence equivalent of like cramming for the exam at the way last minute, not showing up at a single class, right? Like you're gonna fail that and it's your, your fault that you failed. You put in no preparation, right? You get into that habit of getting engaged and seeing something happening it's a lot harder to feel like these people that are, are sitting next to you, that you're having a conversation with, that you're getting to know, even if you disagree with that individual, you can still learn to respect them as a person, but you're never gonna do that with somebody you're engaging with on social media or just seeing on cable news. Or you know, someone whose office represents a million or 10 million individuals, uh, and you're not gonna build that relationship the way you can. And so you lose all of those little release valve opportunities to blow off steam that can arise and suspicion in the absence of, of the personal trust. So let's put a little spin. I love what you're saying about engaging locally, but um, Adam, I'm curious to know what you have seen over the past couple of years, this idea of making decisions at a local level, but having people who run for office and truly understand which decisions get made where, how has the national polarization and ideological scene affected local government? Yeah, so I, I think it's interesting, right? Um, and I think we've all seen how things have changed. And first of all, I wanna say that uh, here in Kent County, our Kent County Board of Commissioners has really been terrific. And I'm not saying it just to give them lip service. Truly, uh, they have been faced with, like commissioners in many places, with extraordinary circumstances and decisions they never envisioned coming before them when they ran for those offices. And, while there may have been moments and things that I disagreed with, um, I have never for a moment thought that they weren't there representing the best interest of the community. So I have that to be thankful for here because I know that hasn't been the case in a lot of other places. And when we look at kind of the platform that people have been running on lately for local offices at county, township, city, village, it's gone from things like the millage, the parkland acquisition, the waste management, the emergency response, you know, the granular things that are so important to life in the community, sort of the big social issues of the day, whether they, whether they think about the constitution or 
for or against uh, abortion or guns or transgender athletes or all these things that are really, really unlikely to ever cross their desk in a meaningful way at the township or the county. And so that's an opportunity and a need for us as public administrators to work with them, to bring them up to speed with what the job entails and the enormity of the issues that are gonna come before them as elected officials in those roles. As elected or as professional staff, it's also a challenge to us to adjust to this. So I'll give you a couple quick examples. Um, prior to the pandemic, uh, when I would go to Lansing or to Washington to talk to our elected officials about an important issue, let's say it was public health emergency preparedness funding. And, and I wanted to, uh, to see a bill passed that would increase the amount of funding for public health emergency response. If I was meeting with a progressive, I would talk about how this is an issue of health equity and making sure that people, all the people in our community have access to the resources and increased resilience so that they can get through a crisis safely. And in my next appointment, I might have a session with a conservative where I'm gonna talk about the same exact bill uh, from a perspective of national security and public safety and protecting our way of life and the economy back home. And both of those approaches would have been absolutely truthful. And there was no deception uh, in either approach. I was being absolutely straight on authentic with, with them, but recognizing that they needed to hear the issue from a certain perspective. And now we're starting to see the same thing at, at other levels. And so I'm, we're, we're, we have to be very careful and intentional about the language we use when bringing forth uh, action requests or, or things that we want to see uh, moved forward. Not because we're being deceptive, but because we have to speak to them where they're at. Uh, another example would be the partnerships that we, that we have, because in public health, we have to engage with community organizations and we have to go where the people are at. And that means partnering with organizations on the left and the right, and people that you may agree with and people that you don't, but if the people of Kent County are going to an event and those event organizers want us to be there to give out information or vaccines or lead test or radon test, whatever it might be, we're gonna be there. Regardless of whether it's the Pride Parade or the Knights of Columbus uh, breakfast, we're gonna do our best to be there because we serve the people of Kent County. However, this creates an opportunity for those who view those groups sometimes as the other and see us there present to assume that we somehow are advocating the enormity of the, of the span of things that they believe in. And so that sometimes creates conflict for us when, when, when those elected officials or those persons see that we were there, so we must uh, be 100% behind their, uh, their mission, their agenda, and that we're not somehow uh, representing the entirety of the community. So we just be very careful now to, uh, to really be uh, as transparent as possible. We, we always do that. Uh, and make sure that we're you know, recognizing where people are coming from because the, the climate is so, uh, so highly charged right now. Yeah. yeah. Um, speaking of that highly charged environment, um, Peter, a question for you. Do you believe that political parties have a role in preventing and condemning political violence? Uh, it would be wonderful if they did, right? It'd be wonderful if we had parties that said, you know what, we should, we should be measured in how we're approaching something. We should not 
you know, let our, our rhetoric slip into the realm where, you know, we seem to be encouraging or potentially condoning violence. Um, instead, we have parties who are more than happy to point out, you know, the sliver in the other party's eye, um, you know, whether, but, but at the same time, not willing to hold their own, you know, uh, you know, co-partisans to that same standard. And, and again, it just becomes, you have parties not arguing about whether or not something's right or wrong, but just always excusing whatever happens on their side and arguing that what the other side's doing is worse. Um, so they absolutely should. And it's really an amazing dynamic between our parties. Like if, if either the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, you know, got their stuff together, the other would really have to sharpen their pencils very quickly. Um, instead, we're left in a more demoralizing position where both just, you know, are not performing well, but they can say, well, you know, but the other guys are doing worse. And so we don't have to worry. We're in a, in a you know, two party system. Uh, we will you know, will be the victors by default. Um, and so I'd love to see that, um, but I think it's also part of a challenge of our, our primary environment as well. Um, you know, I think of how, the, you know, I'm mentioning some of those trends of, of kind of political consolidation. Um, at the same time, there used to be such diversity of, of thought uh, from a stance standpoint within both of our main political parties. Uh, and they have become excruciatingly, excruciatingly homogeneous over the past two decades, um, as have our voting behaviors. You know, 20 years ago, the correlation between a, a how, what party somebody voted for at a county level and who they voted for on a statewide ballot, such as Senate or governor, um, that correlation was 0.55. So it was if, if there's a correlation, incredibly loose, incredibly loose, uh, essentially non-determinative who you're voting for at a local level versus statewide. And over two decades, it went from 0.55 to 0.91, which is almost a perfect correlation. Um, excuse me, 0.95. So I mean, just massive, massive shifts in how we view the parties and how we view our role within them. Um, and as a result, you know, what's lost in that is that slimming number of persuadable voters that actually decide the outcome. And the other major consequence over the past several decades with better data analysis uh, at the voter level, we went from in 2000 of the 435 House seats, 180 of those House seats uh, at the president, during the presidential election uh, were within a 10 point band. So whoever won, uh, one less with less than 10 points, you know, 55 to 45 and, and tighter. Fast forward to 2020, we go from 100 or actually 2022 um, after the redistricting maps, we went from 180 out of 435 that were viewed as competitive to 60. So that number has gone down by two thirds. Uh, so the sad reality is the parties have way less of an incentive in, to be doing the things that are restraining, that may not scare away moderates, that may be trying to uh, emphasize persuadable voters, the marginal voters are gonna determine the outcome. They have less of an incentive to do that because of how much more important the partisan dynamics have become, uh, how much devalued the sort of emphasis on independence. You, know, you lose the muscles that you used to flex to try to make those persuadable voters persuaded. And then, 
uh, add on all of the intangible benefits where that party doesn't really need to win in order for win that general election, right? They don't necessarily need to gain power within government in order to actually prosper uh, and have the part, have the members of that party get really lucrative, you know, brand building and media opportunities. Uh, I mean, in some cases, losing, you know, whether you're Stacey Abrams or Carrie Lake, losing can still be the fantastic thing that happened for your career. You'll be able to make more money and spend a lot more time on TV than you would if you would have won that election. <laughs> It's, it's, so again, kind of shame on us, right? I mean, that, that becomes, um, but that's ways in which the parties end up being very reflective of their constituents um, as well. Yeah. Adam, any thoughts you want to add to that? No, I, I think that, uh, that you know, Peter has summed it up pretty well. I, I, I do think that the, um, you know, the, the margin of people who don't have a strong opinion on on matters, it seems to be diminishing. But sometimes I think we're just not hearing from them as well. And whether or not they're not engaged or they're not uh, coming to their, their township or their, their, their uh, county commission meetings and, and vocalizing their pains, I don't know. But, uh, but certainly um, the, those on the extremes are, are very motivated. Yeah. Hard to know if that person who's not you know, making their voice heard is staying quiet because they're content or they feel there's absolutely no point. Or they're intimidated. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's jump into some of our audience questions here. Um, there's a couple here that have to do with trust. We talked about, um, Peter, you talked quite a bit about how do we trust our institutions. And so a couple of folks want to know, how do you suggest that Americans begin that process um, of trusting that? And how do we... Um, maintain that trust when many feel that entities like the Supreme Court have become so politicized um, and seem to be working across party lines? Uh, I mean, well, on the pandemic side, I mean, I think back to the tabletop exercise they did during the Bush administration on kind of a national pandemic response. And the George Bush administration, or George uh, W. Bush, um, deserves a lot of credit for some of the public health measures. We just had the 20th anniversary of uh, PEPFAR. The, I mean, I think the estimates are it saved 25 million lives in Africa because of, of their efforts to tackle AIDS. But you know, the conclusion out of this tabletop exercise was that the number one thing the federal government uh, had to ensure they maintained at all times was the, the confidence and trust of the public. And I think we got into this moment from a very early stage in, in the current pandemic of people in DC or, or you know, officials on high thinking that they're talking to people who are dumb. And if you think you're talking to someone who's stupid, then you are trying to anticipate a reaction you expect to be stupid. And then you end up saying something different, right? Or not being truthful, not being honest. Um, the early moment where the, uh, the kind of infamous quote from the, the Surgeon General, you know, it was like, don't buy masks, masks don't work, all this. Now, that was intended to try to have, uh, try to avoid the shortage of N95 masks we had that were far more needed by public health officials, by doctors, by folks who were getting exposed uh, or in positions um, where they were far more likely to get exposed to COVID than the average uh, person. But instead of saying, hey, 
you know, we probably think that this is an effective solution. We've had some studies that point to this. However, your risk relative to that of a doctor or a nurse or somebody else is, is lower. So we need, we have a, a shortage, please. We need to maintain this, right? None of that nuance. Right, so then we ping pong between masks don't work to now you have to wear a mask. We go from, uh, we have these very absolutist messaging that then when the data changes or something else changes because our understanding evolves, it's really hard to pivot from something that you said absolutely unequivocally uh, and then equivocate after the fact. And that I think leads to that sense of, of mistrust. It leads to a lot of broken clocks being right twice a day when it comes to conspiracy theories, uh, which then, you know, when you are not an entity that's accountable for everything you're saying and you got a couple of things right and you say, well, I'm just waiting for the other 10 uh, to be proven down the line. Right. So if you don't start from that position of number one, um, I mean, I've had a lot of conversations with folks where I maybe started off because of maybe some epithets that were hurled at me from the outset, not necessarily thinking incredibly highly of an individual and really being proven wrong, right? If you're not engaging with constituents, if you're not talking to them, and if you are, are just coming from a position of, of arrogance, which I think is, you know, it can be hard for a, an authority uh, to continually have to touch that groundstone, especially when you're getting you know, death threats or, or kind of vitriol on a daily basis. Again, then that just encourages somebody to pull back. Now you're just further distant, further removed. And so you need to fight against that impulse. But to build that trust, I mean, you have to give people credit. You have to, even if they may seem not to deserve it, you have to do something to overcome that or else it just becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And then that person that you think is stupid um, and you treat like they're an idiot uh, are maybe going to be encouraged to do something dumb. People are smart. Like they're even somebody who may not seem to have a lot of light bulbs going off in their mind. Like people are living their lives. Um, and I think it's important for officials to, to always recognize that because as soon as you start to treat you know, your constituents as one, you know, uh, manipulatable mob, uh, you are going to just ensure that that's how they end up viewing themselves to fit that frame. Yeah, Peter, that was very well said. And the CEC could have used you as their spokesperson early on, <laughs> because what you just said would have been tremendously more helpful. Well, the J&J &J vaccine uh, kind of speed bump, right? I mean, exactly. And so the, the CDC truly is and, and has been for a long time the foremost public health research uh, agency in the world. And they undid all of that. They did all of that with some of the mistakes early on. And it wasn't the only example, but, it, but there, there, there were a number that caused people to lose trust. And when you do that, the door opens to all kinds of other ideas and conspiracies and alternative theories and, uh, and creates a vacuum for, uh, for credibility that was filled by others. And the same thing happened at other levels of government of as well. You know, locally, I remember during those early days, we met uh, here in Southwest Michigan, many of the health officers, we assessed the risks and we determined that the, the best place for kids at that time was in the classroom. And we communicated that to the state and they said, okay, that's, that's, that's a message we're, you know, we support. We had a press conference saying that 
And then later that night, they reversed course and said that the schools are going to be closed. So it was that sort of miss, missed messaging and opportunities and conf conflicting messages that quickly caused people to say, these clowns don't know what they're doing. And when that happened, um, the confidence and the credibility that we all had started to fade. So to follow up with that, um, you know, what, what are you doing at the health department to try to regain trust? And maybe what are you alluded to a couple of the issues that the health department is seeing these days around mental health and other things, but what are some of those top issues and what are you all doing to actively try to rebuild that trust? Yeah, it's a great question, Megan. Uh, so, you know, we're really getting back to the things that, that we have done well and we do well. And we you know we offer programming across a huge variety of issues and we have people who are trained as subject matter experts in a wide variety of things and getting back to uh, the enormity of things whether it's hearing and vision or restaurant food safety drinking water quality lead inspections there's so many things that we do really well and we want to continue to be proficient and to uh, to increase our, our presence in those areas um, you know building back trust uh, that's a challenge right uh, and so we certainly have a large portion of the community that does trust us and we're very grateful for them. And there are others that it's going to take some time. And so we know that we want to make sure that, uh, that we're mindful of that, that we're inviting them to the conversation, that we're present uh, in those parts of the community. And it's going to take time. There's just no other solution to this is being authentic, being transparent uh, and, and having them have a seat at the table with us. I mean, I think of how much better our institutions would be. And I, and I look at this, I spent a lot of time um, around the Afghanistan withdrawal. And in there, it's one thing to see um, somebody in a position of power make a mistake. Uh, and, and there are mistakes that you can make that are inexcusable. There are mistakes that are forgivable. Uh, but to me, forgivable mistakes, when they're made, become unforgivable if that individual isn't willing to even acknowledge that, right? If there's no reflection, if there's no humility within. And I, I think of some of the retrospectives with, you know, um, and not just, a, I mean, COVID, but any number of things over the past time where it was like, well, would you do anything differently? Or do you have any regrets? Maybe the question's asked by a reporter and somebody says no or none. I, I got talk about earlier. I regret my order and not just going to Taco Bell, but how I formulated it, right? Like if you are thinking about anything, you are going to have regrets. You can, you can defend decisions. You can say, listen, we were doing the best with the best information we had. However, you know, in this sweep of, of history, I look back and at this point, we could have done something differently at that point. Um, maybe we, we erred too much on the side of caution or we should have erred on the side of caution more. Um, but the, I, the, the sort of reflexive defense that I think is oftentimes brought about because then um, you have to, that individual may think, well, I have to say I have no regrets because if I say I regret X, headline, Dr. Fauci says he has regrets and then it just gets extrapolated into extremes, right? But we spend so much time worrying about the worst case possible reaction that it, it almost primes that type of a consequence because folks just shut down and, and you can't, you know, Rebuilding trust, I mean, rebuilding is an active concept. I mean, it's a, it's a verb. You have to do something. It, it won't just happen organically over time. It's not, it's not growing a beard. You know, it's something that has to be flexed and practiced. 
and I think that it's, and that starts with acknowledging, acknowledging uh, and having a, a sense of humility as an elected or, or kind of appointed official. So there's a couple questions here about political innovation. Um, getting rid of the electoral college, wondering if we need a new party system. Um, so let's take a little time to dream a little dream about where our country could go. Um, but Adam, I'll actually throw this to you as well. As you think about public health, you just made a couple references to the CDC. You know, do you have any ideas about, you know, maybe these are a couple things we could do that I think might make the system better. Things if, um, you know, if you, if you were the CDC director for a day that you might want to try um, or pilot to see what would happen. Well, communications yeah. need to improve. And I think that's first and, and foremost is I think that we've, we've lost a lot of the narrative. And we, you know, social media, I think, is one of those elements that um, we, we need to have a better presence, a more creative presence in. I can remember back to go backwards before uh, social media, because I remember those days, when we would have an event, uh, say a spillage of a chemical into a, a, a creek or sewage or something, or an outbreak, we would try to communicate that with a press release, a fax, and an email, and then hope that the media would, uh, would take that uh, as an important bit of information to share. We kind of held our breath and crossed our fingers, and sometimes they did, and sometimes they didn't. With the advent of social media, we really, uh, I think, saw the opportunity to become the media. And I think we've done a lot of that. I think here in Kent County, we used a lot of that in the information that we share with the community, in our studio, and other things. The reality was that the rest of the world also said that we can be the media too. And so everyone became the media. And, and so no one was really the conveyor of, of authentic um, messaging that was, was reliable. And I think that's where the CDC could have an opportunity for improvement going forward is can you own that, not own, it's always gonna be a, a shared space, but can you rebuild credibility there with messaging uh, and, and be present in that space in a way that uh, the, uh, lends itself to people following uh, what you're saying uh, and believing it? Sure. So should we expect the Dancing Dr. London TikTok account or Instagram handle? No, be... nobody wants that. That would not be helpful. Anytime this soon? Is, okay. No, we're good. <laughs> might be eye-catching, though. I mean, people might pay attention. Yeah. Um, Peter, what about you? So there's a lot of things there. Constitutional Convention, Electoral College. My personal favorite, um, ranked choice voting um, that I'm intrigued about. What kinds of things do you think we might need to be looking at? Or not at all? No. I, um, yeah, no. Our, our system is perfectly fine. Don't change a thing. <laughs> right? um, well, I, I mean, media is a big problem. And, and I don't just mean partisan media. I also mean the way in which, uh, I mean, out of curiosity, is there a reporter from the Grand Rapids Press here? Really? Okay. Awesome. This is wonderful. Um, I, from a, I think I spoke to the Grand Rapids Press, and, and you guys were on our press. Okay, I'm, I'm not going to. The Grand Rapids Press was on our, our kind of press list, you know, active engagement. Um, you know, but it, it's a, a newspaper that has, has seen declining revenue, obviously, declining staff. Uh, I think I spoke to them four times over the course um, as, an, as an actual elected official, apart from of political campaigns, maybe four times uh, while I was in Congress. So over a two-year period, four times, 
contrast with the Detroit News and the Detroit Free Press um, that I would talk to uh, in some weeks, uh, two or three times a week, uh, depending on what bills we had going forward. Um, and it was just a, you know, the, the kind of shrinking of, of local news coverage or the ways in which uh, we've gone from, you know, having, having the local news be mainly print to mainly TV. Uh, I mean, and those, and there are far more stories to cover than there are reporters to, to cover those stories. Um, I mean, that, that's a massive problem because if you're always having to go to a national source to get news, you know, you have issues that, uh, again, are, are you know, even the most intrepid reporter can only cover so many beats, can only write so many articles. Uh, and I think then, you know, if you don't have a reporter, you know, talking at, or being at every county commission meeting, every city commission meeting, holding your feet to the fire on something, but also knowing enough about the issue to ask you the questions that need to be asked of you, right? I mean, that becomes a big problem. And, and the amount of times, this is not a grandpa's press dig, but the amount of times I've had an interview with a reporter where, I mean, I just feel terrible because it's clear this reporter doesn't know what they're talking about going in because, you know, they're covering, you know, sports, and, and education and, and religion and also politics. Um, and so I, you know, can we talk off the record? Let me maybe help you understand this issue because the questions you're asking are clear that, that you don't, as opposed to I've talked to reporters who asked me questions about a bill that I wrote. And I was like, I'm having the best time of my life because you just asked me a question I couldn't answer. And I will get back to you, but thank you for, for spending so much time on this issue, right? So if you don't have that again, that media, that neutral arbiter between the elected official and, and, and the, the audience and the constituents, if you don't have that mechanism, you know, nobody has the time, you know, if, if that reporter doesn't have enough time as their full-time job to be able to spend, you know, getting to know that issue, you know, what luck does the average individual have, right? So that is, I think, a massive problem that there was no political solution to. I've like, people have introduced, oh, we gotta have like federal funding for local media. It's like, oh my God, like you don't see how this could go terribly wrong. Um, but I love, I love the reforms around um, just making, forcing our parties to do better by making a more competitive landscape and environment. Um, I think from a messaging standpoint, calling ranked choice voting instant runoff is probably the, the, the easier kind of hold, um, but not having, you know, making folks feel like they have more of an impact with their vote rather than somebody living in, you know, a, a blue state or a red state, and they know that the odds of, of their party winning, so what's even the point? Or, you know, you have, um, you know, scenarios where primary turnout, I mean, this is a massive issue in, in Chicago, in the city of Chicago and city of New York, you know, you have uh, individuals being able to choose, you know, rather unique times and places to hold elections in ways that intentionally shrink how many voters are going to come out. Uh, and because of, you know, the lower participation in a primary relative to a general, it enables machine politics to really take over in a way that's massively beneficial for the incumbents and members of that machine, uh, but at the expense of, of the rest of the constituents feeling well-governed. So bring on more competition. Okay, sounds like the system's ripe for opportunity. Yeah. Um, audience question here, how can we help future generations engage politically in ways that are healthy? And I wanna add on to that, I love this question. 
How do we also help future generations know what to do when their particular viewpoint is either not sanctioned, it's not the one that wins? How do we teach people um, what to do with that? And Adam, I think that has local implications as well. Yeah, so I, I think uh, getting people involved early and um, you know, somehow we've, we've lost this in the education process. I, mean, I don't know where we're learning about uh, this level of participation anymore because uh, we, we ought to be encouraging people to be involved from uh, an early age. Um, and, and then not just seeing the, the toxicity of the things that we're talking about, because I think that that is really repulsive to a lot of people when it comes to getting involved in the process. Um, but also recognizing and appreciating the, the good things that are happening. And while we're here to talk about political violence um, and how that's negatively affected, the reality is, is there's been a lot of good that's happened in the past couple of years as well. And everyone's heard the stories that, that Peter and I have of you know, death threats and, uh, and violence and, and all of that. Um, but I don't think people hear about the good part of it, the encouraging part of it. And, and you know, for example, I've got you know, just one of, of many Ziploc bags that I have of thank you notes and letters of congratulations and pictures that little kids painted. Uh, you know, thank you, Dr. London, thank you, Kent County Health Department. Hey, well, this kind of stuff really makes a difference. Their participation in doing these things made a difference for all of us, kept us going, kept us inspired. And I think, you know, being grateful for that uh, hopefully gets uh, younger people involved and keeps the community involved in, in a way that uh, is positive and not just seeing what they're hearing on, uh, on and seeing on TV and in the media about the negativity. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think one of my frustrations in the moment is getting politically involved usually means you know, uh, commenting on social media or, or attending a rally or some other more kind of performative manifestation rather than, than something tangible. And how much I would love for that, you know, hey, you, you, you wanna know what government does? You wanna know this thing that we do together? You know, let's, um, you know, try to organize a, a, a cleanup of the park. Let's, you know, petition the city council to increase funding you know, to plant more trees in this neighborhood, right? Like getting, I think if you have young people who say, who look around them and see uh, participating and getting involved with government as a means of, of improving the community they see around them, I, I can imagine few things more inspiring than that, as opposed to the way of, of involvement being, you know, you see these people over there, they hate you, they're terrible, you know, I'm gonna help you fight against them. And then folks just getting dragged into the same polarization. Um, and I think how much of our politics is consumed by just an absolutism and an inability to see anything good about your political opponent. And so, I mean, I know I was supposed to be like, I'm gonna get the, the, the positive, the optimism. Yeah, what's that gonna happen? The action it's message. been a while now. No, but I have been, I've been blown away, you know, at. at it, it, frankly, at friendships I've made with people who um, started off, you know, I mean, it just started off like, yeah. but it's the narcissism of small differences at the end of the day, right? And how essential it is, and this is something I always check myself on, you know, if I, if I see something in the media and I think, 
yeah, that's what those people would do. You know, that, like it just immediately confirms all my priors. It hits every little bias button. You know, well, of course, this Democrat over here or of course this crazy Republican would have done X, Y or Z. Um, you know, if it seems too perfect in, in aligning with my priors, it probably is. And then I dig into that issue and, oh, it's always more complex, right? It's never, sometimes it is pretty black and white on, because um, there are some really reprehensible individuals in our political system. Um, but for the vast majority, you know, it, it, there's always more there, right? If you see somebody and they seem to be, um, you know, hitting every one of those sort of negative indicators as somebody that you probably wouldn't like, um, they may be coming into that interaction with the exact same view of you. And all it takes is to kind of change the direction a little bit. Um, and I think if we had more of that in our community, right, you can't always wait for the other person to take the initiative, right? I mean, taking that initiative to, to not write somebody off because of their presumed politics, um, to be able to say, hey, well, we probably disagree on this but there's probably 95 things that we do agree on and let's talk about that, shift that conversation. You know, more participation in, in civic environments rather than getting into, uh, well, I can't go to that church anymore because they've gotten too political in this direction or in that, or, or I'm not gonna participate in this civic club. All of those spaces that we end up abandoning because we feel like other people are taking them over. I mean, whoever is filling the vacuum that you created is probably not gonna be somebody who shares your perspective or is willing to engage with that type of nuance. You know, so I mean, at the end of the day, really being the change that you wish to see and modeling the behavior you hope for others to do. And there's gonna be some, you know, people who don't react well, uh, but I would guarantee there's probably a lot more people who will reflect back kind of that empathy and, and kindness when it's shown to them uh, than people who just scoff and walk away. And I think it's really incumbent upon us as, as leaders, and this applies to everyone in this room uh, as well, as leaders in the community, to be intentional about finding those spaces for participation and that dialogue. Uh, whether it's something large, and what came to mind as you were talking, Peter, was um, the West Michigan Vaccine Clinic, where we called on, we didn't have the staff to make that place work. We called upon the community for volunteers, and the turnout the response we got was overwhelming thousands upon thousands of hours uh, of volunteer time given to us by people of every stripe in the community and all political persuasions. And I, I know because I spoke to pretty much all of them, how they left that place feeling as though they were part of the community and, and really connected to the process. Um, I, I think that, you know, we talk a lot about we need to encourage participation, but talking about it, I mean, we gotta find ways to make it happen. I think. You know, really being creative about how we invite people to spaces and, and really, you know, ask for their help when we need it. Um, serving next to each other and breaking bread with one another. Uh, those are powerful and, and oftentimes not expensive things for us to do to help to uh, overcome the otherism that's so common right now. Mm -hmm. um, and, and to think better about one another and not just uh, who the or what the political identifiers might be. I, I say that there are probably some um, um, well, there's at least one local elected official, but there's some people where I'm like, I really, I, I, I think I could practice it. It might be a Herculean effort around some individuals because it's hard for me to look at somebody and not be like, yeah, I saw all those things you said about me, right? But for the average person, you know, it's, it's essential. Yeah. 
right? There's no, there's no replacing that. But, but to your point on the vaccine clinic, having that common mission, I, I think is, is so important because then that breaks down barriers that might otherwise exist. If you're always coming into it wearing, you know, a partisan jersey of one stripe or the other, um, you know, even if you have, even if you're engaged in the same mission, you know, you, you're, you're still coming at it as members of opposite teams. So I'm hearing you both sort of bring up some ideas about what we can all do to help prevent political violence. And maybe having dinner with a neighbor who we differ from doesn't sound like in a huge thing, but that's really where it starts, right? Um, and it's with some of those relationships. We heard that earlier in the day too. Um, what other solutions do you see to the problem of political violence? And whose responsibility is it? Is it individuals, is it institutions? Is it public servants, political parties? You know, whose task is this? And do you have uh, what other ideas do you have about how we how we address this? I mean, it's all of our responsibilities. I mean, ideally, you have elected individuals or, or, or parties or individuals in power who are are measured and, and thoughtful and and, uh, and view political violence as something that is abhorrent to our democratic process, is abhorrent to the way that our, our, our country operates. Um, but far too often, those same officials end up betraying that responsibility by saying, well, well, they didn't do anything about their people over here, so why should we do something about our folks over here? Or uh, some convoluted way of, of that basically boils down to they started it. Um, and so, you know, in the absence of them taking responsibility, I think that responsibility just ends up, you know, floating downwards. And and so there's nobody in a in a participatory democracy. There's nobody who doesn't bear some obligation. It may be larger or smaller depending on on your ability to project influence. But everybody bears that responsibility. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I can't agree more, and, and I wish I could. I, I, because I've thought about this an awful lot, I, I wish that there was one clear party that it's their responsibility. Um, the tough answer is that it really is all of our responsibility. It, there's just no way around this. Um, Megan, I want to thank you and the Hallenstein Center for pulling this event together because I think gatherings like this and conversations like this and everyone being here this evening to uh, talk about these issues and explore them together, that's a big part of the solution. Uh, without this, it's it's hard to have, you know, home bases in the community where we can come together and have these important conversations. So, really, it's it's everyone's responsibility, and we need to get back to having a, a shared sense of mission and purpose in the community as well. And uh, and again, thinking better of one another. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, um, you know, bringing this close to home. We're here tonight because of a vision and a dream um, and a mission of Colonel Ralph Hallenstein, um, who endowed our center. And his mission was really to raise the next generation of ethical, effective leaders for the 21st century, which is what we seek to do here. Um, and you all are part of that as we continue in our lifelong learning together. So we do have some students here tonight, and a lot of what we do is like to put people on stages who can talk about their career journeys um, and their leadership journeys. So, um, you know, as we think about where you're at in career, did you expect at any point as you were entering your careers of politics and public service and other that you would have to reckon with political violence? Um, and if not, would you have changed your minds 
if you had known that it was coming and what advice would you give to some of our students who are here tonight or anyone else who might be thinking about public service? Oh, oh I'm, I mean, my, most of my experience before this had been in like in a war zone or someplace where like, I mean, <laughs> you saw the sad manifestation of, of that and where neighbors were fighting neighbors and, and, and when kind of societies collapse into that anarchy. Um, and so, you know, it, it didn't surprise me just because I had been growing increasingly disconcerted and concerned and, and I probably wouldn't have run for office if I thought everything was going well and, and we're good. Um, but you shouldn't, you know, I mentioned earlier, like crazy people running for office, you have to be a little bit crazy, a little bit narcissistic, a little bit arrogant to even have it in your head to put yourself forward in that scenario. And, you know, there's a, uh, you know, you just, you hope that those aren't the defining characteristics of somebody seeking office. But um, I think I'm, I'm stubborn enough that I, it's, it isn't a dissuasive factor uh, to me, but I'm also blessed with a wife who is, who is, who compliments and is equally stubborn. Um, and so we don't view those type of threats as something um, to, to kind of clutch our pearls about, but more, I think I counseled um, an aid worker in, in, in Kabul one time. Where I was like, well, look on the bright side. If nobody's trying to kill you, do you really matter that much? And it was, it was kind of a dark humor <laughs> moment because, I mean, you're in Afghanistan. The, the mortality rate for folks doing what we were doing was about one in 50 a year, um, which usually you run the numbers. And you're like, oh, it's a lot safer than I thought. And I ran the numbers. I was like, oh, man, um, that, is, that is not safe. That is, oh, yeah, no, I know a lot of those names. Um, but I think it's that sense of that's the reality today, and it's not a reality we should accept. But, um, you know, I think better for somebody to steal themselves going in uh, than to be kind of brutally confronted with that reality after the fact. Okay. And so, Peter, thank you for your service. Um, so I, I wouldn't have changed anything. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I entered public health knowing there was going to be conflict. Uh, violence necessarily, but conflict, because in public health we have to say no on occasion. We have to say no to people when they want to serve unsafe food to the public or where they're discharging uh, sewage into the ditch. So there's all kinds of reasons why we have to say no to people, and sometimes that makes them very angry. And so we often frequently deal with conflict on a small scale. I can remember uh, when I was new in the field, there was a, a, a much more seasoned, wise person who, after one of those tough conflicts, say, oh, don't worry about it. Uh, dogs don't bark at parked cars. And, uh, you know, and, and this is not to mean that those people were dogs, but was to, to, to mean that if in this field you have to make tough decisions, you have to do things that, that matter and sometimes ruffle feathers. And if you're not doing those things, you're not making a change, you're not particularly protecting the community. And if that's the way you're going to be, then you probably should, you definitely need to think about doing something else. And so my advice would be just to go into it with eyes wide open that it is work that really truly does matter, but sometimes you're gonna get barked at. And that's okay. Uh, the other thing that I would say, and it's almost become a cliche these days, is you have to take care of yourself. And uh, all of us, all of our fields have stresses and, and those fields that deal with a lot of conflict and sometimes aggression, uh, we have to be very, very mindful of taking care of ourselves as well. 
And, and I say that as a bit of a confession from someone who didn't and doesn't really follow that advice as often as I should. I can remember at one point, about two years into the pandemic, where uh, you know, working six, seven days a week, weekends, holidays, no vacation, the team and I had a conversation about where would we like to go on vacation if we could. And the thought about it, I said, you know what I want to do? I just want to go in the woods and stare at a tree for about two weeks. <laughs> and so to those students who are here, if you ever get to a point where you just want to go stare at a tree for a while, uh, you're not taking good enough care of yourself. So you have to be mindful of that as well. Find work that matters. Don't be afraid to get barked at, ruffle feathers once in a while, and take care of yourself. Really important. Except if you're an arborist, in which case staring at trees is perfectly healthy and you're in the right place. In which case, maybe you need to go look at a building for a yeah. while. <laughs> well, um, I think that's a great way to wrap up our conversation. I want to thank you again both so much for your insights tonight. Let's give them a round of applause. Thank you. You know, I know the topic was political violence, preventing political violence, but I think the takeaways for me tonight are really about trust um, and working hard to regain trust and to um, take steps to build more trust in the institutions I'm a part of and also those that I look up to. Um, I think we heard clear messages about the power that voters have and that each of us have and being a part of the solutions to making this happen. Um, engagement was certainly a theme, right? Um, I will shamelessly plug as a former municipal official, every one of your municipalities has boards and commissions with open seats. Anything from parks and rec to trees to um, building inspections. And so we encourage you all to go get involved at a local level. Um, and I think always a great reminder is just the humanity that we can find in each other. And to remember that while we carry titles and responsibilities, that at the end of the day, we're all humans. listening to an episode of The Rewind, a podcast series by the Hounstein Center for Presidential Studies. The audio for this episode was captured by Mark Washburn of Gyrus Media. This episode was produced and sound engineered by Maddie Miller. The Hounstein Center for Presidential Studies at Grand Valley State University is inspired by Ralph Hounstein's life of leadership and service and is dedicated to raising a community of ethical, effective leaders for the 21st century. For more information on our center, our Peter C. Cook Leadership Academy, or our Common Ground Initiative, visit our website at www.gvsu.edu hc. To keep up with our current events and recurring initiatives, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn, all of which can be found linked below. If you liked this episode, consider giving us a review and rating so we can be found by other podcast listeners. Again, thank you for listening.